Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. This is Deb Hunter, and today our amazing guest is Dr. Lily Filson. Lily, how are you today? Hi, good morning, Deb. Thank you for having me so much. I'm I'm actually very thrilled to talk about all things Tudor with you. Well, I want to know more about what you do. I'm so impressed by your CV or resume, as we call it here. You're an author, producer, professor. You specialize in art history and technology of the global renaissance. I have to know more. Uh, Well, I am glad that we got put in touch, actually, because I wrote the large stories. I've been studying mechanical moving sculpture when they reappeared in the Renaissance in Florence. I had the opportunity to do most of my schooling on this academic path that led to me being a professor and publishing articles in Florence. But I recently published an article about the Tudor moving mechanical sculptures of the Renaissance. And I thought it was such an interesting wrinkle of Tudor history and culture in which I feel you'll find out I'm kind of, I have a lot more to learn compared to many, many years studying the Medici in Florence, but it's just such a fascinating era and has such this absolute wealth that I was thrilled that your podcast is exploring. I've had, I've been listening to it and I've heard your episodes and I think that you know, you have some really wonderful guests, and I'm thrilled to be included. Well, thank you. And you mentioned a very valid point. It's amazing how much Florence and Venice influenced Tudor England, isn't it? Oh, well, Western Europe on that broad scale, what was happening with the Medici, you know, not only some of the richest uh, families in Italy, but also in Europe, and they traded as far, far north as London and Bruges and Northern Europe. And just, it was such this interconnected, fascinating tapestry, but with so much, I mean, through marriages, you were talking about Catherine de' Medici in France. And really it it sort of set the tone. We can start to look even at early modern trends, the history of trending, the history of fashion and how much influence. This is a whole, a very historical class of influencers. It truly is. I have to ask you, how did you start your research about medieval mechanical works of art? Well, medieval mechanical works of art appeared on my radar when only after I had been started to study the Renaissance automata. I had the opportunity to do my master's degree as a Florence fellow with Syracuse University in Florence. It's a fabulous program. It's still going on. I highly recommend any listeners or students and thinking of applying. It's a fantastic way to study Italian Renaissance art history specifically. And I was studying as an architectural historian originally. I come from a background of of academics and architects. And I was so taken with 
the existence of grottos as this distinctive architectural phenomenon of the Renaissance. You know, they'd build fake caves, essentially. Some would be covered in gold, some in pearls. These would be just very lavish fantasy spaces. But what they put into these caves, as I was researching some of the Medici ones that had been destroyed, unfortunately, in the 19th century, were these absolute displays of technology, of what was considered magic at the time, and all the associations of Renaissance magic and how it progressed natural sciences and you know alchemy as the basis of modern chemistry. And it intersected with so many interesting aspects of culture. So, so that's really where I encountered sculptures coming alive in my studies. And I thought it was so fascinating. I thought, oh my gosh, here we are studying Renaissance sculpture. And we think of Michelangelo's David. We think that they're fixed and carved out of stone and they don't move. But it turns out in some settings for the very, very privileged and in these elite Medici circles, they did come to life. And then in studying the history of those, I realized that there was this medieval church tradition on their holidays, in particularly in Passion displays, in Pentecost was another big one. You would encounter technology as part of the medieval church experience. Saints would seem to come alive, crucifixes would be jointed and they could move and you'd have a moving, interacting figure of Christ on the crucifix, which you don't think about necessarily in terms of what was the medieval experience of attending church. And in England's case, it fascinated me so much because you had the Reformation and Henry VIII, and even some were exposed in the reign of his predecessor, Henry VII, actually. And I realized what a unique example, because with the Reformation, with all the historical documents that were being created, the polemical arguments, talking about the forgeries of the church, right? We had this amazing written record of what they looked like, how they worked, what the experience was from a, a completely different perspective because the authors were intending to expose versus in other countries, we would just sort of hope to find descriptive mentions in, in observer accounts. You've written an article, I understand, about the what's been called the violent transition that mechanical technology underwent during the English Reformation. Can you expand on that, please? So when you think of the experience of seeing sacred images in church for the parents and the grandparents of those who lived at the time of the Reformation, they were taking the sacred statues that could move. Saints would seem to come alive. There are Virgin Mary images that would seem to move, to nod their head, to to cry. Different liquids, actually, it could be tears, water, sometimes blood. And even the moving crucifix figures, these were part of the medieval religious experience in the setting of churches. And for these works of art to be taken from that church setting to a public one, to a public square, put on display, essentially be stripped open to have their inner workings revealed, to inform the public that it's a string or it has gears or look at this jointed articulated limb. It was also an exposition of engineering and mechanical knowledge on a public scale that, of course, anticipated even later modern knowledge exchanges in public spheres that came with the Enlightenment. Have any of these works of art made it into our present day? In the English Tudor record, not, no. 
There is one articulated crucifix that I am aware of that I cite in my article. I don't want to mispronounce or get this wrong, but there has been one that was walled up into the church wall, they think at the time of the Reformation, and it was only rediscovered in the modern period and it, it survived what was an intentional hiding of this, this relic and this holy work of art so that it wouldn't ultimately be destroyed. The fate that awaited these medieval moving sculptures after they were put on public display and exhibited to the masses was destruction, was, was definitely a violent transition. <laughs> to, not to laugh, but they didn't survive and there's not that material record. In Italy, however, in Italy, there are two couples of jointed sculpture from medieval church displays in wood. They were made by Mariana Romano. They are conserved in a museum in Tuscany to, through the day. And as well, we have the jointed crucifix carved by Donatello. We have more, definitely more preserved examples of jointed articulated automata. There is a one of the pyrotechnic automata, but a later period, one that's thought could make fire, preserved. He's in the figure of a chain devil, and he's preserved in the Mudek Museum in Milan. But the English record can't compare. We lost, so much was lost w during the Reformation period as well. Well, on the Reformation subject, how did the Reformation impact who saw these mechanical works of art? Well, before the English Reformation, when the medieval Catholic Church was operating normally, they were publicly exhibited on the High Holy Days, right, during processions or during moments of Mass and the liturgy in the Church. And these were punctuated the year and were not regular occurrences. They were the climax of the spectacle. The statue moving was a miracle. It was essentially the performance of miracles, However, with the Renaissance, as Henry VIII and influence from the Medici in Florence, and all this time the Medici have been studying Greek texts, the Greek manuscripts that were coming into Florence with this, what we call essentially the root of the Renaissance, the rebirth of classical thought that was happening with all the, this Greek knowledge coming into Florence and being translated into Latin and the vernacular. And this brought the mechanical knowledge. This brought the engineering. It had built upon creating moving sculptures for court contexts. Another magical thread that was outside of the church that happened in the Renaissance was that it was okay to practice ancient magic. Essentially, a lot of Neoplatonic manuscripts in Greek of magical philosophy from late antiquity were being translated and talked about and influencing culture through the works of Marsilio Ficino and the whole birth of the idea of Renaissance magic. Bringing a statue to life, you know, putting the quotes where you want them, giving a statue motion, which for Aristotle and classical thought, the, the authority says that the definition of life has to do with self-generated motion. So if a statue could move on this Aristotelian line of thought, it was alive. And the Medici and Renaissance Florence were reviving also these late antique magical currents of thought about bringing statues to life that came from a Greek uh, hermetic 
going further back to the Ptolemaic tradition of Hellenistic Egypt. And that was what was circulating at these courts, these European royal courts. This was sort of the cutting edge royal magic. And just when the Reformation had destroyed these and removed the what were called the fraudulent idols from the Catholic Church experience, these moving saints and crucifixes, it was coming into the courts of Henry VIII, of Prince Henry of Wales, who unfortunately had a much too early death for what he was planning to build in terms of landscaping and design and integrating engineering into a Florentine-style park as they were building like Pratolino in Florence and other like the, the Villa d'Este that was built in Rome on this level of palace scale. That was planned for England by Prince Henry of Wales, but it never panned out. So England never reached that degree of courtly engineering that the continent w- was flourishing at the courts in Prague, in France, certainly, and everywhere that Medici influence was felt. So Prince Henry of Wales would have been who we know today as Henry VII? Yes, the son of Queen Anne of Denmark. Okay, that Henry, we're moving into Stuart history there. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Yes. No, not the father of Henry okay. VIII. No, no, no. Sure. no, 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 <laughs> no. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. And as a listener to this message, you are already aware of the All Things Tudor podcast. There is also an All Things Tudor book club and a periodic live audio chat, often featuring special guests. Members of the All Things Tudor Facebook group can look forward to some upcoming surprises. So you're invited to become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group and answer the simple membership questions. We look forward to having you join us at All Things Tudor. I just have a thousand questions, as always. You can't talk about magic in a court without thinking about Elizabeth I and John Dee. How would Queen Elizabeth have seen animated sculpture? Queen Elizabeth could have visited animated sculpture in one particular garden of a nobleman in England that we know of. And what is left from this record of what actually got built and existed is on a much smaller scale than the Italian gardens of the Renaissance that had a dozen grottos, each with a different mechanical moving display, and really had just took their pride in these elaborate tableaus of choreographed scenes. She could only go to one particular property, which it is the present-day Carew Manor School in Beddington, Surrey. It's a modern rebuilt brick facade. Part of it survives from 1490, but most of its construction now, looking at it in the present day is early 18th century, and then you know remodeled in the mid-19th century. So perhaps a historical building for some, but the time that interests us when Queen Elizabeth would have visited there, it was not in the same category or the same appearance at all. 
So it was the created by Sir Francis Carew, who lived between 1530 and 1611. And this manor and the garden house that he created in Beddington in Surrey, England, became his claim to fame. It is the reason why it created a record and people were impressed. Building gardens and having mechanical displays, I guess then as now, it's like having a wonderful pool on your property and you invite your friends to see it. And it worked the exact same way in Tudor England in terms of, of social forging connections at court. Was there an overlap with theatrical machinery of the time and these moving statues? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If we are looking for the most behind-the-scenes explanation of how these court features, let's call them, which may or may not have left a technical record, most of the time with these gardens and these palaces, we're relying on visitors' accounts and, and sifting through the record, looking for somebody leaving some note that of what he had seen. Very rarely, very, very rarely do we have a document that tells us exactly how they were made. The literature that does exist on how machines at this time were made, though, comes from these theatrical medieval originating in church medieval drama. They would stage what were known to be dramatic productions. They had elaborate truss work on the roof. There's a famous incident, actually, in Florence of Brunelleschi, the most famous architect of the Renaissance. He built the Duomo on Florence's cathedral. He's you know, the iconic. He's called the father of the Renaissance. Anyway, the architect Brunelleschi, what you don't hear about, also did engineering of these dramatic displays with moving pieces, moving scenery, moving creatures. There could be animated mechanical devils were a favorite of medieval drama. Anyway, Brunelleschi once caused the entire roof of the San Felice church in Florence to collapse in on itself during one of these productions of a church drama. So the mechanical engineering and the framework and the gears and the just the, the technical aspects, what it took to create these seeming miracles or these wonders there's also snarky Florentine documents about making fun of how loud the wheels were. Like it was known, it was definitely known that these were mechanical productions. And that's where this body of wisdom had been c continuing, really. And looking back into that avenue of tr transmission of knowledge, the medieval church came from contact with ultimately Islamic civilization and moving mechanical serving features that were employed in the Islamic Golden Age. And it, it really, really, really just ties into such an ancient tradition. And the crew, we call them, when you put on a, a stage production, the technical crew who created these moving, moving wonders in church passed down were the transmitters of this knowledge tradition of, of engineering and, and motion making in sculpture. So thank you, Dr. Lily Filson, for sharing your interest in how knowledge is produced, transmitted, and modified through time and cultures and the various material forms that it assumes in this process. I'd like to have you back sometime to talk more about the global renaissance. We touch briefly on how the Italian renaissance affected Tudor England and I know just from being in Florence and Venice myself, just the, the textures and the fabric and the spices and 
as I understand it, even playing cards came into England from as a product of the Italian Renaissance. So thank you very much for your time today and have a good one. Bye. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us and for making the magic happen. And a special thanks to Arvila for your review and the support of the All Things Tudor group. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later. <laughs>